When we walk through dark times or difficult circumstances, we often forget that people throughout history before us have walked through similar paths of challenge. We just have this tendency to forget, to idealize history or even idealize the stories we read in the Bible. I'll try to give you a classic example of this. Think about Christmas. When we think about Christmas, often we picture this picture-perfect barn, the sort of thing that you'd expect to find on a magazine cover. We think of a warm, soft light and, and, and some music playing in the background and the smell of pumpkin spice or cinnamon in the air and this clean, plush manger for baby Jesus. But the reality, I'm convinced, is that Mary and Joseph welcomed Jesus into an animal pen, a smelly, dark, cold animal pen. It wasn't warm, it wasn't hygienic, and it wasn't very pleasant. This isn't the only story we do this with. All throughout Scripture, when we read stories, often we idealize the things that we read. And we even do that in the book of Nehemiah that we've been reading. So in Nehemiah, when we read the story of, of the things going on, we think, oh, how cool would it have been to be there and to be a part of rebuilding the wall, to see you know, where they talk about the challenge of, of their adversaries threatening them and they're building with weapons in one hand and their tools in the other. We think that would have been very exciting and to see the wall come together so quickly. And some of that is true. But we, what we also need to realize is that there were absolutely challenging things that the people faced. And what Nehemiah 5, which is our passage for today, what, what it does is in a way it pulls back the curtain and it, it allows us to see some of those challenges. One of the sources that I read this week talked about Nehemiah 5 and it said Nehemiah and the Jews learn in Nehemiah 5 that their problems are internal as well as external. And so that's what we're going to see as we open our Bibles together today. So I'm going to invite you, grab a Bible and read along Nehemiah chapter 5 with me. I'd love for you to read because we're going to be here quite a lot. So whether you look this up on a phone or have a physical Bible in front of you, I would love for you to join us in reading this. As you're turning there, I'll just get us started in verse 1. It says this, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So there's some infighting going on here. Jews fighting against Jews. And there isn't just this murmuring or this complaining. It says there's a great outcry or some translations say protest. Now this outcry has three main uh, complaints to it. The first one is found in the next verse. In verse 2 it says, For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. And we're like, oh wow, the people are struggling while they're rebuilding this wall to even have enough food to put on the table. Now the second complaint we see in the next verse, it says this, verse 3, There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. We're like, oh. Wow, there's a famine going on. Uh, and the people are in such dire circumstances that they're mortgaging their properties. Essentially, what that means is they're taking the title to their house and saying, hey, here, have this. Give us some money, please, so that we have enough cash flow to put food on the table. And the next complaint is found in verse 4 and 5. It says this, And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. 
Essentially, hey, we haven't just mortgaged our, our property, we're now enslaving ourselves to have enough food on our table to keep alive. So to summate all that's been said here, there, there are multiple layers of challenge. One is there's no food. Secondly, people are borrowing against the value of their property to survive. And then people are even borrowing against themselves to survive. Their families, they're, they're going into slavery. So how does Nehemiah, the man called by God to this circumstance, how does he respond to this moment of challenge? I would expect him to maybe respond with worry or anxiety or sadness even over the circumstances or even depression. But no, when we read verse 6, it's actually kind of interesting what it says. It says, and this is Nehemiah telling the story, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. We're like, wait a sec, Nehemiah is angry? Why is he angry? Well, what we're going to find out is that Nehemiah is upset. He's not just upset, he's mad. And that's because the rich Jews are the ones causing the pain and their heartache for their brothers, the poorer Jews. And so we read about this in verse 7. It says, says this, I took counsel with myself, as in I, I thought about these things, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, as in we've all come back from exile. But you even sell your brothers that we, they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. It goes on in verse 9. So I said, the things that you are doing, the, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nation, nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to, to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. So there's quite a bit of scripture here, but essentially Nehemiah is mad and he's, he's confronting the people. He's venting. He's saying, hey, this is not okay. And his anger and frustration comes from the fact that the people are not caring for one another and they're not following God's commands. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19 and 20, it tells God's law says, hey, you're not to take interest from your fellow Jew. That's not okay. And yet here they are taking interest on these loans for each other. If we think about what the Bible tells us just in general, the Bible tells us that God's desire is for all humans to do, it has this desire for all humans to do two things. And this is summed up by Jesus later on in the New Testament. And that is to love God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And these things are just not happening. And understandably, Nehemiah is upset and he calls for a change. He's like, hey guys, I'm upset and this isn't the way that it should be. And we read how the people respond in the next few verses. Let's read verse 12. It says this, Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. 
I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. These few verses here, uh, 12 and 13, I, I believe are some of the most encouraging in this whole chapter. And the reason for that is the people respond with soft hearts. When Nehemiah challenges them, they don't kind of say, hey, what are you talking about? It's okay for us to, to, to take these mortgages and to take this interest. No, they say, you're right. The second thing that's encouraging is that after they resolve this thing, they praise God. I don't know if you saw that there. It says that Nehemiah makes this promise with them and they say amen. And then it says they praised the Lord. So they're right with each other and they're made right with God. And then it goes on. And the third encouraging thing is that it says that they followed through the last sentence and the people did as they promised. And we look at this and we're like, okay, yeah, that's a nice story. But what is a famine in the midst of a renovation project in ancient Jerusalem have to do with me? I mean, talk about a far removed context from where we are. And so we can talk about this, but what I'm trying to say here is this. I believe there are multiple reasons why God wants this story, wanted this story to be recorded in Scripture. I believe that inside of any portion of Scripture that we read or study, there are two things that we will typically find. One is specific truth or truths. These are things that are good for us to, to know and to hold as true. They're highlighted in a particular text where we may read, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, in the Psalms, wherever we may read, there are things that we can, can glean and say, okay, wow, that's a very specific truth that's talked about here. But there are also transcendent truths. These are things that point to the overarching truth of the whole biblical narrative. The specific truth, I believe, in this passage centers around justice. This passage is a reminder that to us that God has a heart for justice, that he has a heart for the poor, for the downtrodden, that God actually hates injustice. All throughout scripture, we are reminded that God is not okay with op oppression, with people causing suffering for one another. If you read Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, it says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Isaiah 61 verse 8 says, For the, I, the Lord, this is God speaking, love justice. I hate robbery and, and wrong. God sees and hates all oppression because of who he is, because of his character. The Bible teaches us that God is all-present, meaning He is everywhere in His created universe, and that He is all-knowing, and that means nothing escapes His attention, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. He sees all injustices, and He hates them because He, in His character, is just. Now, some of you may want to stop me right here at this point and put on the brakes, because you would say, well, wait a minute. You're saying that God is just, but what about all the injustice that I see in the world? Why doesn't he stop that? And you may cite different things that you see in the world around you, like slavery or inequality or people seeming to get away with things that are just great wrongs. 
And so it's a fair question. I, I guess essentially the question is, is God just? Does he just talk about being just? Or in practice, is he just? To answer that, I would say the God of the Bible, the God of the Christian faith, the God that I personally cling to and believe in, is just because he is all-wise, all-powerful, and working on an eternal timeline, an eternal scale to bring about justice. What you find as you read through the Bible is that God says, I am the God of vengeance, as in I am going to right the injustices. I'm going to make them right. The other thing that we notice is as we read through the Bible that God is working towards a plan, especially as you read into the last book of the Bible, Revelation, God is working towards a plan where every human and and in fact every spiritual being will have to give an account for their lives and their actions. And what I see as I read the scriptures is that God's justice will ultimately be served. His justice and his sense of needing justice in the universe he created will be satisfied. Now, there's so much more that could be said on this, but I want to bring us back to Nehemiah 5. And I want to bring us back to Nehemiah 5 because what we need to see is that this passage for us is a warning. It's a call for us to care for the last and the least. It's a reminder not to be blinded by greed to the need all around us. And so I'm asking you today, are there ways that you are turning a blind eye to those around you? As you consider the oppressed and the poor even around you, may I remind you that poverty isn't always a material thing. It can also be spiritual. And maybe here in Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire, we especially need to hear that. Yes, there are some people who struggle in a material sense to have enough food and to have enough um, care that they need. But even on a greater scale, all around us, there is a spiritual poverty. Do we care for our fellow human? Do we share God's heart? Do we love our neighbor? Now, as rich as this specific truth of justice and who God is that we see in this text, I want you to see with me that the transcendent truth in this text is even better. The way that we can look at that is to think of this. Nehemiah fights on, in this story, chapter 5 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah fights on behalf of those who are poor and in debt. And he does this to gain their pardon so that they're no longer slaved, enslaved to their debts, but they're actually given freedom. Now just think about what I said. This story is like a giant arrow pointing directly to the cross. Let's not miss this. Jesus is the better Nehemiah. Because he comes and he fights on our behalf to pardon our debts, which, by the way, are many. And he is the one who who comes and has been dealt the ultimate injustice in that he was undeservedly killed. He didn't deserve deserve to die on that cross. But he, he was killed so that God will pardon those of us who believe in Jesus of our debt and of our sins. So let me just clarify this. Our sins are deserving of punishment. We are in debt like these people in this story were in debt, but in a spiritual sense. And God is just. 
And what that means is that he cannot just ignore our sins. He can't ignore all the things that we've thought, said or done that are offensive to him. And so rather than just ignoring those things and and not being just, he has to be just. And so what he does is he places the punishment for those sins on the shoulders of his son so that you and I can walk free. You see, the cross is this beautiful miracle because what it does is it upholds the justice of God and simultaneously secures us our freedom. And what I'm hoping is, as you hear these words, that you're having one of two reactions. One is that some of you, you have joy just filling your heart because you're like, yes, that's true of me. I believe in Jesus. And what you're saying is so true. How beautiful the fact that Jesus suffered injustice so that I don't get the punishment I deserve. It's like the words of the old song that says, my sins are many, but God's grace is more. The second response that I'm hoping for today is for those of you who do not yet believe that as you hear these words, there's this urgency that's filling your heart to say, I I need to figure this out. If what Harley is saying about God and about Jesus and about my sins is true, I need to figure this out. And if that's you today and you're sensing that urgency of saying, I'm not sure about this stuff, come to Jesus. He is the one who took on the just sentence against our sins as in we deserve punishment for our sins but he took that on himself and through that great injustice he can make you right with God and so the invitation is there to accept that today and if you accept that man we all want to celebrate that with you so to bring us back to what we're talking about and where we started talking about We are called to fight against injustice and oppression. But the fuel for this, the starting point for this, is the cross. And remember, the cross is the greatest injustice that the world has ever seen. We fight injustice from the place of the most injustice. Jesus didn't deserve to die for our sins, and yet he did. And motivated by his love, we can go and serve the world around us. May the love of Jesus propel and compel us to address the oppression, the poverty, and even the spiritual poverty that we see around us. May we move forward in faith today. I want to close by reading one last verse to you. It's from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It says this, He, God, has told you, O man, What is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God?